This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Heartland Seuss Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Heartland Senior Fellow and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I'm changing things up a bit today. Many of you may not know that, in addition to my work on environmental policy, I have had a long and abiding research interest in firearms policy. I don't have much time to devote to that topic as I'd like, but today is one of those rare occasions when I am. We are speaking today to one of the foremost experts on the Second Amendment in the world, Dr. Stephen Halbrook. Aside from writing widely cited academic articles and books on the history and meaning of the Second Amendment and its relevance to contemporary policy issues, Hallbrook, who has both a Ph.D. in philosophy, which I share with him, not, not, not his Ph.D., but mine in philosophy, and a J.D., has briefs in and argued firearms-related cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and lower courts. Dr. Hallbrook has many books uh, too many books to list on a short podcast, but he's here to discuss his most recent today titled The Right to Bear Arms, A Constitutional Right of the People or a Privilege of the Ruling Class. Professor Hallbrook, thanks for being with us. Glad to be on the show, Sterling. Look forward to talking to you and your audience. So, Stephen, before we discuss your book, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you, please tell us a little bit about your history your education, how you came to work on constitutional issues related to firearms. Well, okay, I was in, an undergraduate in the 60s, and uh, at that time, the federal government and some states were moving toward really drastic um, curtailments of the right to keep and bear arms, and there was very little published on the subject, and I started reading about it, and in particular, I started reading the debates on the federal constitution when it was proposed you had like in the virginia convention patrick henry and george mason objecting to the constitution it had no bill of rights at the time and uh, they they indicated that it should protect what became second amendment rights so my interest goes back that far i ended up as you mentioned i got a phd in philosophy from florida state after that i um got a law degree from Georgetown Law School in Washington, D.C., and all those years I've, I've kept um, researching the topic. And finally, as as we know, in 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court um, at, at last um, rendered a very comprehensive opinion affirming the individual character of the right to keep and bear arms. Before that, you had the bogus argument that it was a collective militia right when the Second Amendment says the people the right of the people, it really didn't mean that at all. It meant a state right to have a militia. And and so that's cleared up, And but the, the fight goes on because every time there's uh, a, a ruling that's in favor of the amendment, you have certain states and localities trying to violate the right. Uh, there's a case pending in the U.S. Supreme Court right now. Well, now, the subhead of your book, a constitutional right of the people or a privilege of the ruling class really gets to the bottom line. What's your conclusion, as if I don't already know, and could you run down a brief history explaining your conclusion? Well, the subtitle is is a rhetorical question. Uh, Of course it's a right of the people. It's not a privilege of the ruling class. The, The Second Amendment, like other Bill of Rights provisions, 
um, is not about privileges. It's about inherent rights of the people, pre-existing rights, rights that that you have by being a, being a human being. So, um, but it's it's hotly contested. The right to bear arms. I mean, you've got six states that ban it, basically. New York, um, New Jersey, California, the usual suspects, the states that, that basically restrict everything. Yeah. Um, so uh, New York, for example, the case before the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, uh, will not issue permits to carry a handgun other than to people that have a proper purpose, so-called, which the government decides whether you have a proper purpose. And so most people cannot exercise the right to bear arms. And so the what, what I do in the book is to go through the text, history, and tradition, uh, going back to medieval England up through the American Revolution and up to modern times to show that the right to bear arms, the right to carry arms is a fundamental right that, that pertains to all law-abiding citizens that um, it's not something that the, the government gets to pick and choose. Uh, look, in New York, unless you're a celebrity, um, a billionaire, or you pay the right bribes to the firearm licensing bureau, like in New York City, you don't get a carry permit. And that's just not what the Second Amendment talks about. It refers to the right of the people to keep and bear arms. And yeah, that, that, right. that makes bearing arms in New York a privilege, not a right. Exactly, and it's a privilege only for a select few. Right. So if it's so clear that this is an individual right of, uh, you know, average law-abiding citizens, why do you believe we're still debating and battling over this fundamental point for, after more than two centuries? The same reasons that we used to have to debate whether it was an individual right or a collective right that that nobody has um, – there are people who want to ban firearms, and the reason they want to ban firearms is to control people. That's the whole basis of having the Second Amendment and other parts of the Bill of Rights and our Constitution. The right to serve on juries, to uh, run for office, to free speech, to assemble, to keep and bear arms, the, the privilege against unreasonable search and seizure. These are all rights of a free people that maintain freedom. And once you allow the government to dictate the terms for all of this, you don't have a free society. So the, the right to, to keep and bear arms is to protect the citizenry, not just from individual burglars uh, and, and robbers, but from potential tyranny. That's why we, we've never had a tyranny in this country because that right exists as well as the other rights, the, the jury right, uh, voting, things like that. So when you go to a country where these rights are disrespected, uh, the, you, you potentially have the, the typical authoritarian state, um, totalitarian state. And, and yet it seems to me that the Second Amendment is treated, unlike many of the other rights, as sort of a stepchild. Um, there are controversies around the Fifth Amendment uh, uh, uh Property rights, uh, rights to uh, eminent domain. You have you have court battles over that. There are uh, there have been changes over the years as to how we handle um, prisoners 
and uh, you know we have the Miranda warning now we didn't used to have sort of what 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 stands for their uh, legal rights you know every one of the uh, I don't know many people who say we don't have the individuals don't have a right of free speech they may want to restrict it at the margins and increasingly so I think but um, they don't deny it they don't deny for the most part uh, you have a right to uh, worship the God of your choice. They may not want it in public schools. We can, they can debate that. But there are people who fundamentally say the Second Amendment doesn't mean what it says it means. And, and I'm just wondering how, how it became sort of the stepchild of all the other, why it is the most controversial, it seems to me, of all the amendments. Maybe I'm wrong. You're the constitutional scholar, but that's what it seems to me. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of, um, provision that once a year you take it out of the closet and, and pretend like, um, oh, here's something that we have and we really aren't too proud of it. But, uh, well, by the way, only the National Guard has a right to carry arms. So um, let's put it back in the closet now. But but you're right. And, and let me say the, the litigants in the New York case, um, they're not saying that the right is completely absolute and there's no restrictions at all possible. Uh, they they don't have a problem with having to get a permit to carry a gun. Um, they don't have a problem with getting a background check and, and any required training. But but the state of New York prohibits prohibits the right absolutely unless some bureaucrat decides that you get to exercise that right. So um, the Supreme Court, for example, in the argument o- over the case. Um, questions arose about, well, um, are there ser- sensitive places where you shouldn't be able to carry a gun? And, and the Supreme Court has already stated that um, sensitive places include places like government buildings and schools. So nobody's contending that you should have a right to carry guns in those places. One thing is, is clear, though, if, if they pretend it's a gun-free zone, they really need to take measures to protect people when they go into it. Uh, don't ban guns, and I mean, do it like they do in courthouses. Go through a metal detector and have have the deputies and the marshals there to protect everybody. Um, don't just say no guns allowed, and then only the criminals will, will carry the guns. So, what are the three big firearms-related cases you've won before the Supreme Court? Because I know you've won some, and how did they change the legal and policy landscapes? Well, um, first I argued a case called Thompson Center Arms versus United States. That had to do with the classification of a a, a pistol and, and rifle combination where you could um, use the same parts to have either a, a rifle or a pistol. And that had to do with a, a National Firearms Act issue on, on which we prevailed. Um, the National Firearms Act is a strict regulatory federal scheme that, that pertains to what are considered particularly dangerous weapons like machine guns. But, uh, but the court ruled in our favor that the type of firearm that we were dealing with in that case was not regulated by the NFA. Before, before, we, go, before we go on to your next two cases, let me ask you about that because having read the Constitution uh, several times and the Bill of Rights – I don't see where the the National Firearms Act, for instance, 
is legal under the Constitution. I mean, it says this is supposed to, at least originally as it was interpreted, applied to the federal government. That's why states had all sorts of weird laws. Uh, But it's pretty clear concerning the federal government, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It doesn't say, except in this case or that case, and here's some exceptions like, I don't know, Saturday night uh, specials or or machine guns, like you say, I, I, you know, I can see where you might rule out uh, uh, items of uh, mass destruction because that's not uh, a traditional firearm in the sense of uh, you point it and pull a trigger and the intended target is a single target. A bomb is not that. A cannon, for instance, is not that. Um, you can't limit its destruction to a single person or or, or if you're hunting animal, how did the even the National Firearms Act get to pass the muster? Well, they tried to get around the Second Amendment by making it come under the tax power that Congress has. So Congress required registration of the narrowly defined firearms that are in the National Firearms Act, um, and they justified the registration requirement based on the tax power because. By being registered, you could prove that you had paid the tax. It was a $200 making tax or transfer tax. Um, but it's not an absolute ban at all. I mean, today, $200 uh, is not as much as it was in 1934. And, for example, uh, silencers, noise suppressors, are considered under the National Firearms Act, but they're very widely uh, being bought and, and, and used uh, to save save your hearing. <laughs> But of course, uh, uh, under subsequent laws, they restricted new manufacture of machine guns for civilians. Right. So and, and, and that kept, jacked up the price of those. So only you have to be an elite basically to own those. Right. Have, they tried to do that under the Commerce Clause. But if you look at the Gun Control Act, it's based on the Commerce Clause, like regulation of interstate commerce and in, in, in firearms. But even if you're a felon in possession of a firearm, it only applies to you if the firearm had moved in interstate commerce. And when Congress passed that ban on new machine guns in 1986, it was just a ban on transfer or possession, period. And so there was no no uh, pretension that it was under the Interstate Commerce Clause. So it, it's 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 an unresolved question. Uh, in Heller, the the court said in dictum that that uh, M16s aren't protected by the Second Amendment. The case was not even about that subject. So that's really a hanging legal issue that there's never been a definitive um, defense of, of that ban from 86. I see. So your other two cases, sorry to have uh, taken, well, us on the, uh, you know, taken us down a different path. Right. In 1997, the, the Supreme Court rendered its decision, a favorable decision, and Prince versus United States um, in 1993, Congress passed the so-called Brady Act, and it tried to impose uh, duties on state and local law enforcement officers to um, conduct background checks on people buying handguns. And I represented a number of sheriffs who said, we don't work for the, sec- the federal government. We work for our, our states and our localities. We're not going to do your background checks. If you want federal bureaucrats to do it, go right ahead. So uh, we challenged that, um, that, that law and prevailed in that case. It was a wonderful opinion by Justice Scalia ruling that 
the the federal government, that Congress doesn't have the power to impose administrative responsibilities on state and local officials. Um, you can't just conscript local um, law enforcement officers to work for the federal government. They they don't work for them and they don't get paid for them. So the it was basically a Tenth Amendment case. There's there's no power in Congress to do that. It's one of those powers reserved to the states um, that your lo- local law enforcement, they, they work under state law, not federal law. And the third case? The third case was called Castillo versus United States. Uh, that arose out of the, the Waco tragedy in which you had the ATF conducting the raid in Waco, Texas, against the uh, Branch Davidian religious group. Um, it was a very... Sad situation. A lot of people died. It never had to have happened. The guy they were after could have, they could have arrested him while he was out jogging. Right. But, but ATF wanted to make a big scene about it. Mm-hmm. And what the case boiled down to, uh, I was not one of the trial lawyers, but I got the case on the appeal and then the Supreme Court. Um, the jury acquitted the, the people who survived the, the fire. Um, of murder charges. The federal government came at them. Um, anybody who was left alive, um, uh, you're guilty of murder. Um, they, they, um, they were acquitted of those charges. What they ended up being convicted of was aiding and abetting voluntary manslaughter, which was kind of a slap on the wrist. But the, the case, uh, the, the issue rather that, that I was most involved with at the Supreme Court resolve was the following. There's a federal law that um, you get five years extra added to your sentence if you carry a gun in the course of a federal crime of violence. And um, the jury did convict them of that, so they should have gotten five years for that. But when they went to sentencing, the, the judge gave them 30 years. He said that, well, somebody heard machine gun fire, and therefore you're going to get the 30-year enhancement for use of a machine gun. And, yeah, there was some machine gun fire. ATF used MP5 submachine guns, but there was never any any proof before the jury. They weren't even charged with that, uh, and, and there was no proof that the jury made that finding. So what the Supreme Court ended up doing in a 9-0 to opinion by Justice Breyer, of all people, held that this is a question for the jury to decide. Uh, you can't try them on on one charge and then sentence them for something that's a, a great greater enhancement to that. So so they ended up with the five years they were supposed to get for that charge instead of 30 years. Uh, had it been the 30 years, they would probably, they would still be in prison and they'd probably die there. But they're all, they all got out years ago now uh, because of that result. So uh, what are the big cases where the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that the right to keep and bear arms is an individual right? And in the aftermath of those rulings, um, you know, appellate courts, there are some of these cases, and appellate courts hearing cases seem not to be taken, in my opinion, the court's ruling seriously. They repeatedly allow states to restrict the right, and the Supreme Court has refused numerous appeals of that. You know, it's you either have strict scrutiny because it's a defended, you know, a, a constitutional right, or you have a lesser level. It seems like to me they're not giving it sort of strict scrutiny. They're giving it lesser defense. What's going on there? Well, so th- uh, that applies in various areas of the law, but in this area, 
in 2008 in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court invalidated D.C.'s handgun ban, and they talked in the case about the meaning of the Second Amendment, what does keep mean, keep arms, and of course it means like keep them in the home. What does bear arms mean? It means to carry them. Um, and then following that, in McDonald versus Chicago, two years later, the court said that the Bill of Rights, uh, the Second Amendment, applies to states, not just to the federal government. So those were the, the two big um, decisions. They were blockbuster decisions. But after that, lower courts engaged in the massive resistance to those rulings. Right. Uh, the Ninth Circuit is the worst one. You, you've, there's been probably 50 Second Amendment challenges out there, and every single one of them has turned out to rule against the Second Amendment. Sometimes you'll get a three-judge panel rule for the Second Amendment, and then they, the so-called Mbach full court takes the case, and they reverse that. So on the right to carry arms, the the Supreme Court couldn't have been even couldn't have been clearer that it has to do with carrying arms, and that the people are the people. Uh, so you, yet you have these six states that um, re- refuse to recognize that right, and you have the the federal courts that uh, have jurisdiction over those states upholding these bans. And they say, well, uh, it's not strict scrutiny, it's intermediate scrutiny. Uh, and and if, if there's a pretended government uh, valid objective, the means to get there is always on the side of the government. So if they want to ban uh, carrying guns or they want to ban rifles that they like to call assault weapons, then the, these courts uphold those kinds of restrictions routinely. Well, as we all know, the makeup of the court has changed. Um, we have new justices. Um, so m- most uh, recently, Amy Coney Barrett, and we've got a favorable uh, group of justices on the court for Second Amendment rights. And so I'm expecting um, it's difficult to make predictions. The court does works in, uh, what's that saying, works in strange ways. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm, I think it's most likely the court's going to invalidate the New York law, um, and it should explain in detail the standard of review. It's, it should say that um, if you have a what the text of the Second Amendment shows to be a basic right, uh, you really don't even need a standard of review. You look, just look at the text and you look at our history and tradition, and that's what the court did in, in Heller. So I think it's going to apply that standard in, in in the New York case, and it's going to give guidance to these lower courts and maybe uh, beat them up a little bit and say, look, this is our ruling, and we mean it. We, It's not like you can just ignore what we're saying. We never made up this stuff about intermediate scrutiny. And, in fact, yeah. in Heller, the dissent, that was Justice Breyer's dissent, was that you do this balancing test, and... Um, and, and yet, that's the test that these lower courts have been applying since then. Well, so that's I guess that's the question I was trying to get at is we've got the case before New York and hopefully, you know, and, and I want you to, to describe a little bit because there's some weird machinations there where the court, where the state said, no, you don't need to even hear this because we've changed the law since then, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But before we get to that, I'm just puzzled as to why the court hasn't actually tackled this uh, before now with, with the multiple court rulings that basically said, uh, I mean, it seems to me the lower courts were in the, uh, 
the position of uh, Andrew Jackson before the Supreme Court with uh, uh, the Cherokee when he uh, uh, instituted the Trail of Tears movement. You know, he he said, Mr. Justice, you you know, in effect, Mr. Justice, you've made your ruling now enforce it. It seems to me the lower courts have been doing that since Heller. They, they said, well, yeah, we know you said this, but we don't care. We're going to do it our way. And I'm wondering why the courts haven't slapped their hand before now. Is it just because of the makeup of the court or, you know, what what do you think? Why has it been, uh, you know, a decade or more of court rulings uh, since Heller and McDonald that lower courts have basically, in large part, ignored those court rulings? Right. And so the way it works is the way it's been working. Um, some justices have have complained when the court denies review of a, a lower court ruling that's adverse to the court's precedents. For example, there was a Ninth Circuit case called Peruta where the California ban on carrying was upheld, and uh, Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Scalia, wrote a dissent saying that we need to be taking these cases where we've got the text of the Bill of Rights explicitly uh, protects this this activity, the right to bear arms, and, and yet we deny these cases and, and we take these other cases that aren't even where constitutional rights basically have been invented. They're not even in the Bill of Rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been going on for some time. And But if you look at the strategy, if you're a justice on the court and you're pro-Second Amendment, um, and, and I don't mean that in a political way at all. I mean, if you take serious your oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Yeah. Um, it takes four justices to vote in favor of taking a case before the Supreme Court. But if, if I was Justice Thomas or Gorsuch or one of those, I wouldn't want the court to take a case if I thought we're going to lose the case, the Second Amendment's going to lose the case. So it, it, it apparently... Uh, is the case that up until now, actually up until last term, the justices who recognized the Second Amendment, uh, if there, to the extent there were four of them at a time, would not want to uh, have the court take the case if they figured they were going to lose. Uh, but you mentioned a few minutes ago uh, a case that involved New York City. Yeah. The The court took that case last term. New York City had a rule that as follows. You can get a permit to have a handgun on your premises, like at your house, but you can't take it out of your house. You can't take it on a vacation to go to upstate New York to a summer home or or to go to a shooting match in New Jersey. You can't take it out of your house. And so the Supreme Court, I mean, that's such an oddball law. That that must not have existed anywhere in the world to have a, a law like that. So the Supreme Court took the case, and New York... Uh, tried to squeeze its way out of that case in every which way they could. Uh, they complained and they said, we're going to change the law. And the court said, no, you're going to go through the briefing. You're going to go to hearing. And so they, by, by the time the case went to oral argument, uh, New York City had changed its law very narrowly, though. And they said, well, OK, you can go to a shooting match, but you have to go go there directly and come right back, basically. Uh, it's the same with going to like a, a, a summer home in upstate. Yeah. Uh, so 
they weaseled out of the case because they knew good and well the court was not going to uphold that law. Um, the, first of all, usually the, the court won't even take a case unless it's going to reverse the court below. Um, and and uh, an outlandish law like that, I mean, you might have even had liberal justices voting against it. And in fact, at the oral argument, even Justice Ginsburg asked the, the lawyer for New York City, like, there's never been any public safety justification for this law, is there? And, and you know, the guy just kind of looked down and <laughs> basically admitted it. So, But there's no way they're going to get out of the case that's there now. The only way they could do that would be to to repeal their law requiring this special need to ha- to carry a gun. It's the Sullivan there, Law, right? It, it goes back to the Sullivan Law from 1911. Yeah. Uh, that law was passed. The, you know, Big Tim Sullivan's Irish gang was in control of New York. Uh, they didn't like these Italian immigrants who were coming in, and and they were competitors, basically. And so they passed that law. Uh, it was basically an anti-immigrant law. And and they made it where, like, Sullivan's police could could arrest people. They could put guns in their pockets and, the, and then arrest them for it. And so you actually had people sewing up their coat pockets so the cops couldn't put gu- plant guns in them. <laughs> Uh, and so, and we know how effective it was at keeping uh, the the growth of uh, the mafia and all the other things in New York. It it clearly solved the problem. Yeah, hey, um, look, that came up in the oral argument in November. Uh, the the state's attorney for New York was arguing that nobody's allowed to carry guns, and and Justice Alito said, "Well, um, what about the people like blue collar people? They get off work." Um, they got to go through these high crime areas on the subway and all that to get home and they can't get a permit. And she said, well, no, um, they got to have a special need. And so he said, oh yeah. So unless I can prove like next Thursday, I'm going to be attacked, then I can't get a permit. Um, and, but she reiterated, well, nobody's allowed to have the guns. And so Alito said, oh, so nobody's actually carrying guns in these places. And she said, well, criminals are, and so that was exactly his point. Hello. Yeah. That's why law-abiding people should have the right to do the same, to protect yeah. themselves. There you go. Uh, well, it'll be interesting to see what comes of the case. Uh, are you involved in arguing that case? No. That case was argued by Paul Clement, who's the former Solicitor right. General of the United States. Uh, I filed a brief on behalf of the National African American Gun Association. There you go. Um because we, you know, the, the, I think numerous books and papers have been written about how many gun control laws were uh, um, racial laws to suppress uh, uh, minority gun ownership or use, suppress their ability to defend themselves in the face of racism. Um, so in closing, if there's one point, the most important point you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation today about the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms, what would it be, Stephen? Well, St. George Tucker wrote the first commentaries on the Constitution. That was in 1803. And he, here's what he said about the Bill of Rights. It's written so the regular people can understand it and know when their rights are violated and do something about it. It's not written for government to, to interpret and, and to monopolize. So that's really what we're talking about here. The public and American public has always understood the Second Amendment to mean what it said, and and you all you had these um, 
you know, sophisticated elites saying, oh, it doesn't mean the people, the right of the people at all. It means the National Guard making this stuff up with a straight face. So my lesson is, like, be familiar with your rights. Read the, the Bill of Rights. Read the Constitution and stand up for your rights. Just don't take violation of those rights sitting down. Well, wise words, Dr. Halbrook. We've been pleased you be with us today. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. Oh, my pleasure. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Heartland's website as we follow the work of Professor Stephen Halbrook and the progress of firearms laws, regulations, and court rulings that affect you. And go frequently to our PolicyBot site, your one-stop shop for free market solutions to public policy problems. In addition, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate these podcasts on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye.